I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, and uh, if you don't have one, look under a seat in front of you, or, uh, or maybe under your own seat, you should find a copy there, and open it again to John's Gospel, again to John chapter 3 in this series on salvation, God's wonderful work. Uh, we, we've kind of been all over the, not all over the place, but in different passages week to week, which is a little bit uh, different from how we normally work through God's Word um, throughout the better part of the year, usually working sequentially through whole books of the Bible. Uh, but for once, we're in the, the same passage, sort of, um, two weeks in a row during this series. And I'm glad for that. You may not be, but I certainly am. John chapter 3, today, verses 16 through 21. Uh, the other day I was going to do some shopping and as I pulled into the parking space at the store that I was going to, I noticed that I was parked right in front of, uh, probably a late nineties, maybe early two thousands model Chevy conversion van. You know what a conversion van is. It's uh, one of those panel vans that's kind of tricked out with captain seats in the back, shag carpet, velvet headliners, a TV and a VCR and more cup holders than you know what to do with. When I was a kid, I thought conversion vans were like the bee's knees. We just had a regular caravan growing up. I always wanted a conversion van. Now that I'm a dad with lots of kids, I'm glad we don't have a conversion van. I don't know where we would park that thing. But we use that word conversion, and talking about a conversion van, you take a panel van and you convert it into, uh, you know, this awesome road warrior vehicle. That word conversion we use in, in, in lots of places and in lots of ways in uh, our daily life. And the meaning is essentially same. You take one thing from one state of being to another. Uh, recently, a, a couple of years ago, our church, we, we changed um, uh, databases for how we um, keep track of who our members are and your phone numbers and things like that. And we had to have a data conversion. We had to, all of our old data uh, was turned all into ones and zeros, and all the ones were turned to zeros, all the zeros were turned to ones in the appropriate order, and they, they converted the data to this new system. We use that word conversion in lots of different ways, lots of different places. We use that word conversion even theologically, even salvifically when it relates to as it relates to our salvation conversion when we use that that word in the christian sense in the biblical sense is to do the same thing to mean the same thing to take something to take someone from one state of being to another this morning we look at that aspect of salvation that we would call conversion here's what we'll see or here's how how i'll define uh, conversion this morning from god's word that conversion is how believers, how people who, who have trusted Christ, how they experience God's work in salvation. It's, it's the, the most maybe subjective aspect of our salvation. A lot of these uh, matters that we've been talking about and how God works his, his saving work, his redeeming work in the lives of people have all been by God's initiative. It's stuff that God does apart from any effort of our own. But conversion is a little bit different. It's subjective. It's something that we experience. We experience conversion. We are changed from one state of being to another and mindfully and willfully so. So conversion is how believers experience God's work in salvation. It's the, the willing act of turning from sin in order to turn to God and placing one's trust in the person and work of Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. Conversion, if we could boil it down to two things, is faith and repentance. To be converted, to become a Christian for the first time means expressing faith in Christ and repenting of sin, to go from death to to life, to go from being outside of Christ to being in Christ, to go from darkness to light. 
this morning as we see the idea of conversion explained to us in John's gospel. I would hope for us that the fact that that faith and repentance, these two aspects of conversion, being how we receive and experience salvation, uh, that, that this reality uh, posited to us again from God's Word should cause us, especially as Christians, to return to them, to return to faith and repentance over and again for ongoing confidence and joy in our salvation. If conversion, if faith and repentance are how we experience salvation, then it ought to be how also we live out our salvation returning to faith, returning to repentance, day after day, year after year, in faithfulness to Christ. So let's hear how Jesus talks about conversion. Again, in that midnight conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, I invite you to stand with me as you're comfortably able, as we honor God by reading His Word. You'll remember from last week, we saw Nicodemus, this uh, ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, who came to Jesus in the middle of the night and wanted to ask him some questions. And Jesus told Nicodemus this unbelievable statement, you must be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God. At the end of uh, our passage last week, we saw that Jesus uh, was explaining to Nicodemus that whoever believes in the Son of Man, that is also the Son of God, the Messiah, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And he picks up in verse 16. Jesus continues, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Conversion is how believers experience God's work in salvation. The the two parts of conversion, of going from death to life, of being outside of relationship with Christ to in relationship with Christ, comes through faith and repentance. And so we're going to look at those those two aspects, faith and repentance, as Jesus describes them here in John and as we see them fleshed out in other places of Scripture. So let's look first at that aspect of faith. Faith is... Define it this way, the active recognition and receiving of God's loving gift of His Son. I know that's a long definition, but, you know, four-word sermon subhead doesn't quite fit it. So this is faith. Faith, in the biblical sense, is the active recognition and receiving of God's loving gift in His Son. Now, let's just, we don't have time to go into this whole, like, why should we believe as opposed to not believe that God exists or that Jesus is his son or whether that's a sermon for another time. Uh, but let's dispense this morning with the idea that, that commonly from, from the world that, that Christians are criticized for, that, that faith is believing something even in the absence of evidence. Like, there are many in the world who, who would like to see Christians who have faith as those who have seen a magician do a magic trick. 
And then they saw that magician show them how he does the magic trick, the, boy, the ball, the coin, whatever, didn't actually disappear, it's just sleight of hand. But, then they, but they believed that it disappeared all the same. So having seen the trick, having seen how it works out, they still believe that the ball disappeared. And that's what Christians believe when they believe in Jesus. They believe in spite of uh, the contrary evidence, or they believe despite the absence of evidence to, to what they believe. And that's certainly not the case. We as Christians have good reason to believe that God does exist. We have good reason to, to trust the Gospels and what they say about who Jesus is, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's historically reliable. The, the, the Bible is, is consistent in how it is carried along through the generations, not being changed in its content or what it says. I believe that the Bible explains the, the, the world, the way that we see the world, in the best possible terms. There are lots of good reasons, lots of good evidence to believe that God exists, that the Bible is true, that Jesus really did uh, die for sins and was raised again. But that's not the kind of, that's not the aspect of faith that we're talking about here this morning. So if that's what you came for, um, prepare to be disappointed. Faith in the sense of salvation, exercising faith as a part of being converted, being saved, is the active recognition and the receiving of God's loving gift of his son. So here in John 3, we've, we've come to obviously one of the most recognizable verses in all of the Bible, John 3.16. Even if uh, some of you are here this morning, you've not been in church for very long, you probably know about John 3.16. But it's helpful for us to remember that this verse is far more than God's favorite thing to write on a poster to get on TV at a college football game. John 3.16 are the words of Jesus in a conversation with Nicodemus, that Pharisee, in the middle of the night when they were talking about the kingdom of God and what is necessary for entering it. John 3.16 has a, a, a broader or a specific biblical context. There, it comes in the context of this, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus about being born again, about being regenerated, born again from above, and in the context of this conversation about faith and repentance. You'll recall last week our passage of study ended with John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where there Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then Jesus' explanation of how eternal life comes continues in chapter 3, verse 16. For, meaning because, because God so loved the world that he gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, there it is, belief in the Son, necessary for life. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus has said it twice in this conversation already, but what does it mean to believe, to have faith in the Son, to have faith in Jesus? Well, faith is first actively recognizing that Jesus is how God demonstrates His love for sinners. That's the first aspect of faith recognizing that Jesus Christ is how God shows his love for sinners. And the best way to translate John 3.16, I think, is as the Christian Standard Bible or the New Living Translation translate it. You may be holding one of those translations uh, in your lap. We normally read and, and study from, uh, at least uh, uh, I do, preach from the English Standard Version. Uh, but here's one aspect where maybe the Christian Standard Bible or the New Living Translation actually translate it better. If you were to read John 3.16 in the Christian Standard Bible or the New Living Translation, it would sound like this. For God loved the world in this way. Or, for this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. The word in Greek that is translated in English as so, God so loved the world, is not a word meaning a, a matter of degree. 
John 3.16, there Jesus is not saying God loved the world so much to such a great degree that he sent his son. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't love the world to a great degree. Of course he does. But that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is God loved the world in this very specific way. Among all the infinite number of ways that God could have demonstrated to sinners that he loved them, he chose this one. In all of his infinite wisdom, God loves sinners, shows that he loves sinners by sending his son. It sounds familiar to another passage, doesn't it? Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where there Paul says to the church in Rome that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is how God demonstrates his love for sinners. And faith in him is to recognize that this is how God has shown his his love for his creation. Now that Greek word uh, for belief or for faith, we have to believe in Christ, is the Greek word pistis. And it has a verb form as well, pistuon. Now pistis, that word for faith, is often translated in in our English Bibles as either faith or belief, or trust, or dependence. It's one word that has a, a broad semantic range. And so we have to find different English words to, that, that fit it best in, in, its, uh, in its context. And so the verb form of pistis, pistuon, to believe, to have faith, to trust, to depend upon, is, is translated there along similar lines. So faith, belief in the Son, first involves the recognition It's a a mental task first, mentally recognizing the the facts of who Jesus is, recognition of the truth of of a particular thing. Belief in Christ, the Son of God, is first of all recognizing the historical truth that Jesus is the Son of God and that he lived a sinless life and that he died to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins and that he was raised again. It is, it is giving mental recognition to these things as facts in the same way that we would uh, look back at certain events in history. The Great Depression really happened. We believe that, right? So, so faith in Christ starts with a belief in the facts of certain events, in, 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 the assertion, in some of the assertions that the Bible gives to us about who Jesus is and what he has done. But according to Jesus here in John chapter 3, having faith in the Son, faith that leads to eternal life, also requires realizing that this was how God knew best to show his love for sinners. So having faith in Christ is is not merely believing in the facts of Jesus' life, but it's also believing what God has said about his motivation for sending Jesus or or what his, his sending of Jesus says about him. It says that he loves sinners. And he's loved them this way. So faith is first actively recognizing, it's a a mental thing first, that Jesus is how God shows his love for those who are lost. But faith, believing in the Son that leads to eternal life, like Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, is also actively receiving God's loving gift of his Son. So there's a a head-level thing. I've got to recognize that Jesus is God's Son, that he died for my sins, that he was raised from the dead, and... And I have to receive, believe that this is a gift of God, that Christ is a gift of God. I have to receive him. I have to bring, I have to bring him into my life or bring myself to, to him. I've got to take that gift. See, Jesus does not say here in John chapter 3, verse 16, whoever believes that the Son is all of these things will have eternal life. And what does he say? Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. 
Not whoever believes that he, but whoever believes in him. In fact, the way that John records the words of Jesus are are really difficult to translate into English because he uses not just the simple verb believe, whoever believes in the infinitive sense here, but he uses a participle. A participle is a, in English, it's an ing word uh, that, that stands in here as a noun. And so if we were to translate John 3.16, this part of it literally, it would be something like, whoever is a believing one in him. Even harder, the preposition in, whoever believes in him. Prepositions are, are words of relationship or, or location. In, to, for, by, with, above, below. You get the idea? Believe in him. This preposition, in, in, the, in the language in which Paul wrote it, is a word that's most commonly translated not simply in, but into. To go from outside to inside something. So we read John 3.16 this way. God loved the world in this manner, in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever is a believing one into him will not perish but have eternal life. That's pretty clunky, isn't it? In English, uh, translating it quite literally like that into English makes it, makes it difficult to communicate. But you get kind of a sense of what John is saying here, don't you? That faith involves not only the recognition of the truth of Jesus that he existed, that he is divine, that he is the human, uh, fully divine, fully human son of God, that he died for sins, that he was raised from the dead. It's not just recognizing the facts of Jesus, but it's the active and ongoing, whoever is a believing one, not whoever was a believing one, whoever may one day be, whoever is in a present sense, present active sense, whoever is a believing one in him is saved. It's the active and ongoing placement of trust, the active and ongoing placement of dependence into Jesus as God's Son that the Bible defines as faith. In this way, we receive God's gift of, of, of love, of salvation, of Jesus. We receive God's gift by giving ourselves over to Him, by finding ourselves and our faith in Him, by placing our lives in His hands to save. I think it's kind of funny when we look at John 3.16 this way, that so often we, we talk about salvation, we talk about conversion, we talk about faith leading unto salvation as the act of asking Jesus into your heart. If you ask Jesus into your heart, you'll be saved. But here in John 3.16, faith seems to be more and better illustrated by Jesus as not asking Jesus into our heart, but by asking Jesus to place us within his whoever is a believing one, into Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm not saying it's, it's bad or wrong or heretical theology to say we ought to ask Christ into our heart. There is that aspect of, of receiving Christ into us, uh, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit indwelling the lives of believers when we come to Christ by faith. That's all true. But sometimes we, we, we make it the simple thing like we could just say to heaven, Jesus, come in my heart but without any desire to be in Christ's heart. And we can miss salvation. We can miss the biblical definition of faith entirely. So faith is first the active recognition of the truth of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, and also the active receiving of Jesus by placing our dependence, our trust, our belief in him as a person, resting our lives on Christ to hold us, to keep us, to save us. I wonder if we might think of faith in this way, like a father who gives his son a gift. 
It's truly a gift. It's not deserved. It's not earned. The kid hasn't done anything. He hasn't completed so many chores to get this prize or whatever. It's just a gift out of the love of the father who knows that his child will delight in it. I know that my son will love this thing. And so because I love to see him delight in the things that I, I'm going to give it to him because I want him to have this joy. I want him to be uh, fulfilled in this way. I want, I want to see his face light up. Now, the child, when the father presents that gift to them, has several options now, don't they? On the one hand, the son could distrust his father because they have, he, he has assumed that his father is either evil or stupid, and so he just rejects the gift. My dad's dumb. He doesn't know what's good for me. I don't care what he gives me. He doesn't know what's really going to make me happy. Or my dad's a jerk. He's evil, even though he may not be, but, but, right, but I'm a teenager, and I just don't like my parents right now. So I'm not going to take the gift. That's one option. A second option is that the the son could acknowledge the gift. Father says, son, I've got a gift for you because I think you'll delight in it. I I want you to have this. And the child could say, thank you for that gift and could take it and acknowledge the goodwill of his father in giving it, but then just take the gift and set it on a shelf. Never open it, never use it. Just, yeah, okay, thanks, dad, and go about his way. There's a third option that child has. That son could see the truly undeserved nature of the gift. Perhaps just the day before, he and his father were fighting over something, or he had, he had intentionally disobeyed the will of his father. He knew that, that he and his dad were, were kind of on the rocks in their relationship. And so when the father comes with this gift, he, he has in mind all the stuff that happened the day before, and that there's a breach in their relationship. And yet the father's saying, Hey, listen, I, I mean, we're not undoing any of the consequences necessarily of what happened yesterday. You're not, not wiping that away. But listen, I love you, and I want you to delight in this thing, and I got this for you. And that child could believe that his father loved him. And, and receiving that gift, trusting the, the goodwill and the love of his father, could take and, and unwrap that gift. And on seeing that whatever it is that his father gave to him is not only what what their own heart desires, but but what they delight in most, they are pleased then to play with that gift, to use it for all that it is for, and to enjoy it as a gift from a loving parent. I wonder if we think about faith that way, if that helps us understand a little bit about what Jesus is saying here, about all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That belief in Christ is to see that he is God's gift of love to sinners. And not, just, and not just taking Jesus and setting him on a shelf. Not just bringing him into the room of our lives and setting him over here. But receiving Jesus. Opening him up and experiencing all of the joy and the life and delight and pleasure and holiness and forgiveness and grace that God gives to us in Jesus. I wonder if we ought to think about faith that way. Faith that saves is the active recognition that Jesus is the Son of God who died for sins and rose from the dead, and it's the active receiving of Jesus as God's gift to sinners. What about repentance, conversion? Going from death to life, from being not a Christian to being a Christian, to go from darkness to light, is in part faith, but conversion is also repentance. And we see in Scripture these two, faith and repentance, going together all the time. So what do we mean when we talk about repentance as this part of conversion, converting to Christianity, becoming a Christian? Well, I'll define it this way. The repentance is the active turning from sin to God 
and to the life that he offers. This is what repentance is. Literally, the word repentance, and we'll look at this in a moment, it means literally to turn, to, to change. So it's turning from sin to God, turning from death in our sin to life in him. Repentance is the act of turning from sin to God. Now, this word, repentance, is not stated explicitly here in John chapter 3. You probably noticed that. Jesus doesn't use the word repent. But I think the idea is there sort of implicitly. We'll see that in a moment. Now, the Greek word for repentance, you may know, is this Greek. It feels like it's a Greek day, doesn't it? But these, you know, important things. The Greek word for repentance that we often see translated there in the New Testament is this Greek word metanoia. And it means literally a change of life or a change of mind. There's a transformation there. And at the heart of both Jesus and John the Baptist's commands and earliest preaching, it's, it's right there, as, as well as the earliest preaching of the apostles, that idea of faith and, and repentance uh, especially. So in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read, In those days John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And John the Baptist's message was, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to God. Turn from sin to God because the kingdom of heaven is coming. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, turn, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. We read this. After John was arrested, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith, they're hand in hand in Jesus' preaching. And even in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the first Christian sermon ever preached publicly by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says to those that he is preaching to, when they hear the gospel and say, what must we do? Peter says, repent, turn, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see faith and repentance, and repentance especially is a constant theme in the preaching of the gospel. Turning, changing your life, changing your mind, turning away from sin, away from selfishness, away from darkness to God, to life, to Christ and the light. Now, biblically, repentance, we see over and again, is the willful act of turning, turning from sin, turning to God. It's a willful change of direction in a person's life, something you do on purpose. So where the word repent is not present here in John chapter 3, in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, the idea of repentance is there. Do you see it? Jesus compares walking by faith with walking in the light and doing works by the power of God's enabling. So to believe in the Son is to walk in the light and to have a life that, demonstrate, that demonstrates God's activity in it, God's empowering in it. Conversely, he compares unbelief with walking in darkness and doing evil deeds that intend to be hidden from the sight of God. So we have faith and life in the light on the one hand, and we have unbelief and life in the darkness on the other hand. Uh, um, uh, Eternal life by faith on the one hand, and condemnation, life in the darkness on the other hand. There is in in that comparison an an implicit call to Nicodemus, this teacher of the law, and to anyone else who reads it and, and hears these verses, even to us today, a call to turn from darkness and walk in the light that is Christ. This is an urging from Jesus to Nicodemus to exercise repentance. 
changing from desiring to hide evil and instead to bring it all into the light of God's truth with dependence and active receipt of the person of Jesus as God's gift to sinners for salvation. Repentance is a turning, which means it's more than simple regret. It's more than simple sadness over having your sin exposed. Instead, repentance is a a wholesale change in the direction of a person's life. Note how Paul discusses new life in Christ in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Just listen carefully. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, each one of you, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, here in Ephesians 4, Paul doesn't use that term repentance in the same way that Jesus didn't use the explicit term repentance in John chapter 3. But it's there, it's present, it's implied, and it's obvious to us as we read it. We see in Ephesians 4, as Paul describes what life in Christ looks like for these new believers in Ephesus, we we see a change and a turning at every point from evil actions and sin and selfishness to an almost equal and opposite action of holiness and loving service to others. Repentance involves the, the ceasing, the stopping of doing wicked things, to be sure. But it also goes further to pursue righteousness. It's a wholesale change in direction. Just like a U-turn on the road. You get stuck in the wrong lane, go in the wrong direction. You get to an intersection, you can turn around and go the other way. If you, you know you're going the wrong direction, you'll just stop in the middle of the intersection and see what happens. You finish the turn and get going the other way. That's what repentance is. It's not just stopping in the intersection and going, oh, see what happens now. I'm not going in the wrong direction anymore. Yeah, but you're not going in the right direction either. So we see illustra- uh, 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 repentance illustrated in Ephesians 4. That, that the repenting thief no longer exerts his effort to steal from other, others, to burgle others for his own sake. But now the thief, the repenting thief, puts forth effort. He exerts himself in gainful labor so that he'll so- have something to give to others who are in need. Perhaps even to give to those whose need he has created by his burgling. The person repenting of sinful anger brings, uh, begins to deal with their anger and to seek reconciliation quickly, thus no longer holding grudges but keeping short accounts of wrongs committed against them. The pathological liar stops, stops lying and becomes a pathological speaker of grace and truth to others. You see illust- uh, 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 repentance illustrated. Jesus says, To have eternal life, you receive the Son. You believe that He is God's gift to sinners. And and you find yourself in Him. You place your faith, your dependence, your, your trust for salvation and forgiveness. You place all of that into Him. And you walk in the light. You believe and you repent. I wonder if we can think about repentance this way. And the way we can respond to repentance like this. Think about in your mind the carton a week smoker 
who receives a cancer diagnosis from their doctor. That person has some options, don't they? Now, by the way, I'm not here to give you medical advice, but smoking's bad, don't do it. Now, this person, this carton of, this carton of weak smoker who receives this cancer diagnosis has some options when they receive that diagnosis, don't they? They can, on the one hand, say their doctor is crazy, their doctor is wicked, I went to WebMD, I know exactly what's going on with me. I really don't have a problem. I don't have what that doctor says that I have. And though the doctor tells me that I need surgery and I need to have chemotherapy and that I need to have a lung transplant, I'm happy to just go home and take a couple ibuprofen instead. I've got this figured out. That's one option. That's one option. A second option that the carton a week smoker who has lung cancer can respond to the diagnosis with is that they can, they can receive the diagnosis. Doc, you're right. I do have cancer. And they can go through surgery. They can get that transplant. They can go through chemotherapy. But as soon as all of that is over, they can go right on smoking like they always have. Dealt with that problem. Cancer's gone. I can start smoking again. Any doctor with a patient like that is going to pull his hair out if he has any left. There's a third option, though, for the carton a week smoker who's given diagnosis of lung cancer. They can receive the diagnosis from the doctor. I do have cancer. My life is on the line. They can go through surgery. They can have that transplant. They can finish their full course of chemotherapy. And wanting not to return to the state, to the trouble that they were in before, they can go on quitting smoking every day thereafter, knowing that that was the thing that was killing them in the first place. This is what repentance looks like. It is to receive a diagnosis from God. The diagnosis is that all of us, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, because of our our selfish desire to live life on our own terms, that what we have earned for our sin is death. Isn't it interesting? I heard recently in a podcast, it's it's funny, we get paid to do what what is wicked. We get paid to do what is wicked. Now that payment is death. The wages you receive for your sin is death. This is the diagnosis that God gives to us. All of us are dying because we've rejected his, his authority, his kingship, his, his lordship over our life, his authority over all things. But there's a cure. There's a fix. And, and, and it's not just to do away with the diagnosis of, of death, but it is to give us a whole new kind of abundant life altogether, a transformed kind of life, better even than the healthiest kind of life we could work out for ourselves. The diagnosis is that in our sin, we are, dead, we are dying and dead already. But the hope, the cure, the plan of action is turn from that. Stop living that way. Stop rejecting God's authority in your life. And now, and now live in light of his authority in your life. Receive that. And, and more than that, recognize that your sins need to be paid for. You need a, 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 not just a lung transplant. You need a heart transplant. And that that has been made possible by the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins. He, he transplants his righteousness into you as he has taken a, all of your sin on himself in the cross. God says to all sinners who hear that diagnosis and want to be free of it, want to have life. He says, here's how you receive it. You believe in my son. You don't just believe that he died for sins and was raised again, but you receive him as my gift to you who gave himself for your sin and rose again. And you stop doing the things you did before. You repent, you turn, you go from the darkness to walk in light. This is what conversion is. This is what faith and repentance are. It's active recognition of who Jesus is, active receiving of who Jesus is as God's gift, 
and active daily turning from sin to Christ for the rest of our lives. So we see that faith and repentance are how we receive and we experience God's grace. This is what Jesus leads us to. Now, salvation, we've said all along, is God's wonderful work. It's the subtitle of the series that we're in, and I mean it. Salvation is what God does on behalf of sinners who in their sin have made themselves themselves unable to do anything to save themselves. Election, atonement, calling, three aspects of salvation we've looked at already, others that we'll look at in the future, justification, adoption, glorification. These are all aspects of salvation that are totally of God and from God and by the effort of God only upon the life of of the individual. But conversion faith and repentance, and and, and even sanctification, as we'll see in a couple weeks, which is ongoing experience and growth by faith and repentance. Conversion and sanctification do involve the willing action of sinners in response to God's work. Faith and repentance are how we receive and experience God's grace. Faith is to say in an ongoing way, Lord Jesus, I'm depending upon you for all that I need to be righteous. That's what it is to be a person who believes in the Son. Day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, Lord Jesus, I'm depending on you for all I need to be righteous. And repentance is to say in an ongoing way, Lord, I put sin behind me to put you before me. Shape me, change me, lead me to live and act and love and serve as you would have me. This is how we experience salvation and how we walk in salvation. Daily trusting, daily turning. In this way, we we receive the blessing of salvation willfully and joyfully. God doesn't drag anyone into his kingdom kicking and screaming. He gives us a heart to, to love Christ and to delight in repentance. And he gives us the help of his Holy Spirit as we trust in Christ to, to help us to trust and turn day by day. And faith and repentance are how we, we commit ourselves to live knowing the, the grace of God in Christ, daily trusting daily turning. So what does this mean for us today? What does this matter for us today? What does it matter that conversion, that faith and repentance are there in the Bible and that we're called to it? Well, first, you must believe in Christ and turn from sin to have eternal life. Jesus is is as serious and as clear as he can be about that in John chapter 3. If you want eternal life, and eternal life is not just quantity of life. It's not just life going on forever. Eternal life is also a quality of life. Jesus says in John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is abundant life. It is life that goes on forever in the presence of God. Yes, but it's also a kind of life that we could never bring about on our own. Even if if after you die, you could upload your consciousness to the internet and live on in in the cloud forever, that would not be eternal life. Because it's it's not the quality of life that God intends to give us, you see. If you want the kind of life that only God can give, a life of righteousness, a, a life that delights in doing what is right, a life that, that is full of, the, of all of the joy that we have in relationship with our Creator, there's one way to have it. It's by trusting Jesus and turning from sin. Jesus is dead clear about this. So because we must believe in Christ and turn from sin to have eternal life, Christians, we have to invite others to experience salvation by trusting Jesus and turning from sin. 
It, it, it is one thing, and we encourage you often, and prayerfully, we're practicing it regularly, sharing the gospel with others. Sharing with them that there is a holy God, that man has a problem of sin, that Jesus is God's loving response to our sin and the way to have life. And, and, that the, and that the way to have life is to believe in Christ and turn from sin. But Christian, we have to go a step further in the sharing of our gospel with others to say to those that we're sharing with, friend, will you believe this? Will you have faith today? I've told you what the response is, but now I'm asking you. Now I'm inviting you. Will you trust him? Will you turn from sin to find abundant life in Christ today? Will you, will you place all of your faith in him? Will you, will you depend in and, and on Christ to, to forgive you and, and give you new life with your creator? Will you do that? Because we must believe in Christ and turn from sin to have eternal life, we have to extend that invitation explicitly to people that we're sharing the gospel to. Don't just stop at, these are the facts of the gospel. Friend, go a step further and invite faith, invite belief, invite those that you're sharing the gospel with to experience salvation by trusting Jesus and turning from sin. Friend, if that's you today and you've not not trusted Christ, you've not believed on him, put your dependence in him for salvation, you've not turned from sin, here's my invitation to you today. Be saved today. Believe Christ today. The, the, The promise is here in God's word twice. John 3.15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 3.16, whoever believes in him, whoever is a believing one into him will not perish, will not be lost to perdition, but will have eternal life, an abundance of life given by God, both now and forever. Friend, receive eternal life. Trust Jesus today. What else does it mean for us? Why does this matter for us today? Well, Christian, means that genuine faith in Christ and repentance from sin are ongoing actions. That's what it matters for us today. Faith and repentance are not a one-time thing. They're an ongoing thing. Whoever is a believing one in him. Repentance is an ongoing turning, a regular turning. Every time that, we, that, that, that God shows us sin in our life, we are turning and ready to turn back to Christ. Because faith and repentance are both ongoing states for the believer. Isn't that interesting? Faith and repentance aren't just actions. They're states. It's a state of living. It's a state of of seeing the world in an ongoing way. Daily trusting, daily turning. Because this is the, the, the fact of the matter, Christians must seek to encourage one another to finish well in faith. It's good to remind yourself to daily trust and daily turn. But it's also good for you to remind other Christians and to be reminded by other Christians to daily trust and daily turn. This means on the one hand that believers should help one another constructively and mindfully deal with doubt. When when our faith is tested, when, when we encounter questions about God or about our salvation or about theology or the Bible or the world, we should deal with them faithfully and mindfully with other Christians. We should not treat doubts as something that, is, that, that, that are toxic to our faith, but we treat doubt as opportunities to seek God's faithfulness in the response to real and hard and genuine questions. Doubt often provides avenues for us for strengthening faith, strengthening trust in a trustworthy God, not by avoiding our doubt or our doubts, but by prayerfully and honestly seeking to address them. And we need to do this in community with one another. We need the help of other Christians to dig deep into God's word for answers to hard questions that that test our faith or maybe seek to threaten our dependence on Christ. We don't grow in faith by shoving those things aside. We grow in faith by digging deep 
in God's word, learning to trust daily a trustworthy God. Second, it means that believers should strive to be trustworthy confidants for others, for other believers who can confess their sins to them and who, who we can lean on in helpful repenting. Because repentance is an ongoing state for the believer. We need the help of other believers. We need to be trustworthy confidants to others to confess their sins to so that there can be healing. We need to be, be those who are walking alongside and, 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 and who are you know, sources of, of steadiness for those who are repenting to lean upon. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said repentance is not penitence alone. It's not just sorrow for your sin, but it's also faith. Repentance is not penitence alone, but also faith, which apprehends the promise of forgiveness, lest the penitent sinners perish. Which means, repenting people are daily reminding each other of the promise of, salvations for, promise of salvation for those who trust Christ. And if there is no promise of salvation in response to our, our, our repentance, well, we would just go on in a pitiful existence forever. But we take joy in repenting because we, we get to remind ourselves and remind one another of the promise of salvation that comes to those who trust Jesus and turn from their sin. We should not grow weary or calloused to the sorrow that we have over sin when the Holy Spirit shows it to us in our lives. Instead, we should allow our trust in God who forgives us through Christ to lead us to confess our sins to one another that we might find healing and lasting repentance. This is what the, the truth of conversion, the truth of faith and repentance means for us. For the non-Christian or for the, the person who maybe has, has done some actions in church that they thought were faith and repentance, but they weren't really depending on Jesus. They weren't really turning from sin. They were just saying some words that someone in church told them to say. The call to those is to believe for the first time. Find your faith in Jesus. Be a believing one into him. Not just that he is, but trusting who he is and what he's done for all that you need for salvation. And then, really turn from sin. Really turn from sin. And that requires confessing it to God and sometimes to others. And can I just say, brothers and sisters, that is hard. The faith thing is not a thing that most of us as Christians struggle with that hard. Trusting Jesus for salvation. The repentance bit, that's tricky. That's tricky. Because it re requires us being vulnerable with people that we trust and who know us and know our lives and, and have the kind of relationship with us that they can do something about it to say, brother, sister, I sinned this week this way and I want to turn from it, which is why I'm telling you. I want to bring it out of the darkness and into the light and so I need your help in my life to keep turning. We're good at, at faith. We, we struggle, I think, with repentance, but this is, what, this is what the gospel calls us to. A life of ongoing turning from sin to God and the abundant life that he gives us in Christ. And so we see that conversion is how we experience the transformational event of salvation. It's the willful action of turning from non-belief to faith and dependence in Christ. And it's turning from sinful independence from God to joyful devotion to God. So the question today, friends, is this. Have you been converted? Have you been changed from one state to another? Not by a religious experience, but by actively trusting Christ and turning to follow him. Have you been converted? If not, if not the, the invitation is to you today. Trust Christ today. Turn to him today.
And, and as we're dismissed, I'll, I'll, I'll be here this morning. You come find me. Find another, another uh, Christian here in our church, a member of our church, Pastor Danny or uh, anybody else, one of our Bible study small group leaders, and say, I need to trust him today. I need to be converted. I need to be saved today. I need to trust him and turn from my sin. Christian, are you living as one who has been converted? Are you daily experiencing the transformative effects of God's salvation by finding yourself in Christ, by walking in a pattern of repentance? If not, then, brother or sister, I invite you, return to the joy of your salvation. Renew your dependence on Christ. Ask a trusted Christian friend for help to walk in repentance. These are ongoing states for the believer, not just a one-time event. It's what we are converted to, a life of disbelief, and we were converted from a life of disbelief, walking in darkness, to now a life which is ongoing, in faith, dependence upon Jesus, and walking in the light of His love and grace and all the joy that comes with bringing our sin out into the light so that God can burn it up with, with, with the presence of His holiness. Christian, live this way. Live as one who is converted. Live daily trusting, daily turning. Be an example of the effects of the gospel on a life truly redeemed for those who are witnessing your lives. Let's pray together and ask God that it would be so.